Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Mike Pesca, host of the podcast The Gist, about his 2018 book, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. Upon Further Review assembles more than two dozen writers in an effort to imagine worlds where Muhammad Ali received his draft deferment, football never became America's game, and the tug-of-war was still an Olympic event. Together, in an entertaining fashion, they reveal the contingent nature of our present. Not only that, but the essays are simply fun to read. Mike, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. You know, I hadn't heard that description before in the over two dozen. I'm always wary that it's going to be 25, but it's 31. So that's and a forward by Malcolm Gladwell. So that is certainly that clears the over two dozen bar by a lot. No, I just I had to make sure that it was that it was over two dozen. Uh, you know, I, I went and I counted and I and I made sure of that. So, before jumping to the book, I was just wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, I uh, grew up on Long Island, the son of teachers, and my dad instilled in me um, habits that I have to this day. He got me a subscription to the New Republic, and he got me a subscription to the National Review, and he said read them both, and I read them both, and I took interesting things away from each. So I've always been the kind of thinker who likes an argument wherever it comes from. For many years, I worked for a public radio show called On the Media, and then I transitioned to becoming a full-time reporter for National Public Radio. I covered politics and other general matters for about three years. And then for the last six or seven years, I worked there sports. I was a full-time sports correspondent. So I did, I think, a half dozen World Series and Super Bowls and five NCAA Final Fours and six or seven Um NCAA tournaments overall. And uh, it was a great gig. At around year eight, maybe seven of that, I started as a co-host on a sports show called Hang Up and Listen that was produced by Slate. And the guy who ran Slate podcast at the time, Andy Bowers, said, hey, why not come here and do a full-time podcast? And I did. And that became my new job. The podcast was called The Gist. I've since bought it out from Slate. It's not very sportsy. The sports content is cordoned off to one side. The gist is about everything in the world, but the gist is the longest running news analysis podcast in existence, almost coming up on 10 years. And along the way, I edited this upon further review book, which was a great joy to put together. So as a person that has interest in both sports and politics, what is the, the overlap for you that, that makes you uh, see, see the, uh, the relationship between both? Yeah, well, this book really exemplifies that. So to become a what if, most of what ifs are endemic to the sports fan. And the what if is usually, man, why'd we draft this guy? Why didn't we draft that guy? Or that referee blew the call, you know, one event. And it's usually about the linear progression of my favorite team that was thwarted from winning a championship or championships. And if we had just had this other player or this other play go for us, we'd have had that. So that's what the usual uh, sports what if is. And I understand that. And it's a good bar time exercise. I'm more interested in the historic. I'm interested in sports what ifs that. So there was some criteria of what get into the what got into the book and a sports what if that somehow affects the rest of history, I was very interested in that. So Shira Springer wrote about boycotting the Munich Olympics. And in the very first chapter, Lee Montville talked about Muhammad Ali getting a draft deferment. He was actually denied 
his draft deferment. And these have ripple effects across the culture. Extremely interested in them. But I'm also interested in things that happened a long time ago that you have to know about history, society, or politics to understand how things change and maybe how close we were for, I don't know, track and field becoming as big here or as as big as it is in Europe right now. Or how, you know, what if Major League Baseball had started drug testing in 1991 with a lot of the implications, societal implications um, involved in that. So, yeah, I'm very that is exactly it's the overlap that compelled me to um, commission a chapter more than anything else. And some of these, like you said, you know, are very serious, like Muhammad Ali. What if he had gotten the draft deferment? Uh, but some of these are also, uh, you know, maybe goofy is is the right word to describe it. Yes. Uh, you know what? You know what? If the tug of war was still was still in uh, in the Olympics, or you know, my personal favorite, what if the rim was too small for the basketball? So, you know, how did you, uh, you know, what what made you decide to include some of these uh, more outlandish uh, what ifs? That the what if the rim were smaller than the basketball? That is the most polarizing chapter. And I won't give too much away, but a page and a half in, you realize it means that the ball can't get through the hoop. And so there are implications there. John Boyce wrote that, who has a, yes, shall we say goofy, shall we say skewed mind? Yeah, for anyone uh, who doesn't know, he's an up an utter genius. And they should they should yeah. Google him. <laughs> he's like the Andy Kaufman of sports writing or statistical analysis. So I wanted to work on a few different vectors. One is I'm just really interested in history. So give me a straightforward history chapter or a chapter written with, you know, rivulets and flares. And that take it takes us someplace. I wanted just to commission very interesting, may, uh, maybe wacky writers. And so Boyce is an example of that. But I really wanted to also encourage the writers to experiment with form. So in some ways, you'll get Leigh Montville writing an essay that could have been written in many places. I mean, not by many people because he's the best. But the Muhammad Ali essay and the draft, draft deferment doesn't read like a fake newscast of the time. It doesn't read like a uh, speech that Muhammad Ali gives looking back. The chapter on Jerry Tarkanian uh, being inducted into the Hall of Fame is a faux speech uh, of that ilk. So... There are, but the tug of war chapter is written in the style of uh, an encyclopedia entry uh, from the near past or an imagined past. So I wanted to have different kind of writers, different kind of topics, and different kinds of forms. I wanted to have some essays. I wanted to have some mostly graph-based arguments. I wanted to have some essays where the genre was absurdist humor. I wanted to have some essays where the genre was memoir. I wanted to have some straight history. And I wanted to have some that weaved a little bit of each. And so I did. And it's maybe a little, all the reviews, the consistent review of the type of person who liked it is, wow, there are many great chapters here, but not every chapter is for every reader. And I not only say that's fine, I said, if it were, I'd have been doing something wrong, given my conception about how to put the book together. Yeah, no, and I think it, you know, it, it clearly shows your diversity of, of interests, uh, you know, in book form, uh, bringing together all the these different these different perspectives. So how did you go about finding the the writers? And, uh, you know, to what extent were did you pick people and say, hey, you should write about this? Uh, versus giving them the freedom? And, and also, what was just the editorial process like working with these writers uh, when they sent you their drafts? 
So some I started writer-based. And so I asked Jesse Eisenberg, yeah, the actor, who's uh, a friend of mine and a listener to The Gist. And he's a great writer. He writes these funny shouts and murmurs pieces, but he's also a big NBA fan. Hey, would you want to write something? And we batted around and we come up with, what if I hadn't written that fan letter to Dan Marley in April of 1993? By the way, based on this essay in the book, and there's a Conan O'Brien appearance where Jesse is on, he talks about actually getting to meet Dan Marley based on the presence of that essay. So somewhere writer-based, uh, someone I knew, Robert Siegel, who I work with uh, at NPR for a long time. I know he was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Hey, do you want to write something about the Dodgers? The obviously, the obvious one is what if they hadn't left Brooklyn? So Robert Siegel wrote that. With Will Leach, uh, I know Will Leach. I like him a lot. He's going to write about baseball, but what? And through a few rounds, a few back and forths, we come to this, I think, maybe interesting thought experiment. What if baseball were only a once a week game? And that was not even something that I had. I don't know if he or I had ever thought of it independently, but somehow through the iteration of figuring out what chapter, that's how that one was born. Some were topic driven. I really wanted a chess chapter. Who? Because I think Bobby Fischer is really interesting. So I cast about who, who can write about chess. Does anyone know a great chess guy? Uh, Dylan Loeb McLean was recommended to me. And that became the chapter that I didn't know Dylan beforehand, but uh, I'm glad to have known him afterwards. And some of them were more about, like I knew sort of in between. I'd love Shira Springer, who wrote my Hitler chapter and writes for the Boston Globe. I said, do you think, oh, Lay Monville also wrote for the Boston Globe. I hit up each of them and I said something about Bob Ryan. I mean, he's a great writer. He's been covering the league since the early 70s. Can we get Bob Ryan to write something? And then they hooked me up with Bob Ryan and he wrote this chapter on essentially Bill Walton's knee. So it came about, it came about a few ways, but those are the main ways that I commissioned these essays. Right. So, so lots of variety. And and as you have sort of, you know, mentioning some of those names, a lot of journalists, but also you know, actors, uh, you know, others, you know, one of the chapters, one of the authors that I found really interesting was that you've got Julian Zelizer, who uh, is a, is a, 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 you know, a big friend of the New Books Network. We've had Julian, Julian on uh, multiple times because he uh, writes and edits so many great books of history. Uh, and, and he has, you know, he 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 talks about one of his uh, his favorite subjects, someone he writes about all the time, Richard Nixon. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about uh, that, because that's a kind of an interesting thing to think about. You know, what, what if Nixon had been good at football? So, you know, yeah. would you mind sharing a little bit about that story? So I don't exactly remember how I met Julian, but maybe he was a, a guest on one of my shows and we got to talking or maybe he had seen this and known I had covered sports for NPR about football and the Jets. Turns out we're both really big Jets fans and we bonded over the Jets. So every time I would have Julian on to talk about a book or just talk to him socially, there was always some significant Jets conversation. He really knows what he's talking about. He's come out with uh, just a wide range of topics, but there was this Nixon book. And so knowing that he was a Jets fan and knowing that Nixon was obsessed with football, I came up with the idea. And also, his book was very much based on the personality of Nixon. He did a um, good psychoanalysis of the man. So I said, you know, if we change this, you know, we're all formed uh, as youths and that shapes our personality. Nixon was Nixon felt bullied. Nixon felt like he had this persona um, of the blocking tackle, the blocking dummy. He loved football, but he weighed, he was a lineman who weighed, you know, barely 160 pounds 
it's just fascinating given that Nixon also became the president who is most obviously shaped by a psychology that was about wanting. You know, we could talk about, to some extent or another, all presidents are, but Nixon's psychology is right there on display. Who better than Julian to talk about it? Yeah, no, Julian is... um... You know, his, his as a historian, you know, he's he, he's a great one. So it's it's interesting that you got a historian to write a what if. Um, and, you know, I, I wondered if there was anyone when you when you pitch this idea, if they felt that they bristled maybe a little bit at this idea of writing a what if or if people for the most part were really excited to take on a project like this. Yeah, there were a couple people who didn't it didn't wind up in the book and uh, some were time constraints and some I remember. um yeah, I wanted Frank DeFord to do it, but it wasn't feeling well, and he died soon thereafter. That was that was a shame. I uh, was very friendly with Frank from doing NPR together with him and doing some live events. But I, I really uh, so the one that didn't happen. What would usually happen is that we couldn't agree on a topic, and so the idea it would it seemed sometimes a topic would get pitched, and it was a little obvious to me what the answer is. Like, what if the Boston Red Sox had integrated sooner? This was a topic that was proposed. And my answer was, well, they'd have been better sooner, right? So what else can we do? Like, that's a good bar what if, and or it's even better, it's more elevated than the usual, what if uh, Mike Renfro's catch in the end zone had been ruled a completion, not an incompletion, right? Um, so that's good. It's a good actual in the wild what if, but I don't know if there's a whole chapter there. Or one of the people I approached, who's a big name uh, writer and podcaster, actually, who you'd know, he wanted to do something about the uh, the Munich Olympics. And I'm like, oh, that's great. But what exactly do you want to do about the Munich Olympics? And he wanted to use it as a jumping off point to talk about how if the uh, Israeli athletes weren't killed, America or the world's opinion of terrorism and athletics would have changed. I'm like, it might have. Can you convince me? And it just, yet to me, it didn't get there, you know? And so I said, I'd love to have you in the book. Can you think of any other topics? And he's busy guys. Like, no, I think we've gone down this road pretty far. Let's uh, pull up stakes. Also, there was one other chapter, another historian. It was uh, a baseball historian who wrote a chapter that I did think it way too in the weeds. And so if you knew this, the setup of the, of the, um, not even the, the American league, what was the, what was the non-American league, non-national league? There was a third Pacific league. league, the Pacific coast league. <laughs> no, it was the one with the Chicago Wells, And I don't know. It was the, oh, it no was idea. the ABA of baseball for a while, but you had to be pretty intricately involved in the ownership structure. And I just couldn't make it work. We couldn't make it work to our, satisfaction so that that one got killed too right right like you know something that you know just noticing is obviously you know you try to if if it was about individual players uh or or individual athletes you know you went for for the big names like uh mike tyson like maybe people if they're not basketball fans wouldn't know who bill walton is so i feel like you know anyone who's who knows a little bit about basketball has probably heard the name bill walton at least heard, heard of his son Right. There are there were a lot of people. The number one idea that people pitched was a Len Bias chapter because people really didn't want Len Bias to have died. And my obviously and my not my problem with that, but it was just, again, what if Len Bias has li- had lived? The answer is 
you wish several Boston Celtics championships into existence. But as soon as you read the chapter title, that's what you would say, you know, and I couldn't really find anyone who could say anything a little more interesting or why would you want to argue, oh, even if he had lived, he would have only made the finals once and not want to change. Like, what's the what's the joy in that? You know, there's maybe, you know, thinking about it, there's maybe a chapter to be written about uh, our drug policy. But I, I, I only that only occurred to me uh, later. But, yeah, I do think. You want when you want a chapter about an individual athlete, you want an icon because it's meaningful to people. Gretzky, perhaps Walton, Muhammad Ali. I wanted a chapter on these people. My biggest regret is I don't have a soccer chapter and I tried to get one, but nothing really came off perfectly. And it would have been great. I mean, the Maradona hand of God thing is just out there or some question about soccer being popular in america although it's getting more popular now so that's a regret i think you did have one soccer... chapter about soccer about the women's national soccer team yes but yes. That, that was the, but nothing about um but that that was really really it though just about that was the, i think the only soccer chapter yes and and there was a title nine chapter by mary pilon and louisa thomas wrote what if the uh, u.s women's national soccer team had lost the World Cup. Well, I think we're living it now. The U.S. national team right. has just <laughs> lost the World Cup. So no, what would happen? I guess the coach would get fired and then there'd be a huge kerfuffle if uh, if uh, Megan Rapinoe law, uh, missed the goal because she was too woke. That's what would happen because that's what did happen. Right. <laughs> well, well. So, I mean, I mean, some of the like one of them has been answered. For example, you know, what if the National League had the DH? Well, we know the answer to that now. So, you know, yeah. Uh, but historically, it's great the players who would be able to have kept on playing and who'd who'd have gotten huge contracts. And by the way, it's the Federal League. That's the league I was trying to think of. It just hit me. Right. You know, there's so much. Uh, there's there's so much baseball in here. What is it about baseball in particular that you think lends itself uh, to to what ifs? You know the. Uh... You know the theory about the size of the ball's inverse relationship to the literary merits of the sport? You ever hear that one? I've never heard of that, no. So there what you go. It? So the smaller the ball, the ball, the better the writing. <laughs> so volleyball, <laughs> pretty big ball, no, not so good writing. Basketball, little smaller ball, better writing. Baseball, very small ball, very good writing. I guess soccer is somewhere in between. Boxing, no ball involved, great writing. Golf, tiniest ball, people will argue, Mark Twain on down, it's the best writing. I think the the real answer is, since baseball is slow and pastoral and goes back uh, over 150 years and is so quintessentially American, all these things lend themselves to great American writers being able to graft their ideas onto baseball and to have, you know, and baseball also kind of intertwines with us as a part of life and it's uh, present for six months and almost every day. So there's a way to kind of check in with it and to use it as a temperature or a gauge. A lot of writers use the symbolism of a baseball team. You know, I can't tell you how many books, how many novels I've read where the fortunes of the team are a sort of proxy for the main character or one of the characters looks up to a certain player and they become uh, a symbol of that character or that character's aspirations baseball just lends itself to that also you know if we talked about football it's a very martial game where people are obscured by their uniforms we talked about basketball the average height is six eight baseball players are a little more human a little more approachable and i think it's the omnipresence of it all
Yeah, there's so I, you know it's hard it's it's hard for me to imagine someone at a football game or a basketball game sitting down and writing about it while you're there. However, yeah. it's it's easy to imagine someone sitting at a baseball game and writing about the game because you know it's just more quiet, much quieter. Yeah. You can you can you know there's you can take a. I mean, obviously the you know the game is uh is is changing, which is you know something something that I do want to ask about uh, towards the end, just about you know some of these uh you know what ifs obviously what if they change the rules of baseball which they have you know what do you have any any thoughts on on that you know what on, on some of the changes that you've seen recently in baseball yeah i think they're great because they've changed the rules or made rules to get back to the way the game was played uh when it was much more popular that's why they changed the rules just the length of the game was obviously a detriment to enjoyment and not just generationally. I'm no traditionalist, knee-jerk traditionalist, but uh, uh, an affair that's ideally and became the most popular entertainment in America at two hours. Once you stretch that to four hours, it's not logical to think, oh, that will just be double the pleasure. It will seem attenuated and less pressing and sort of like the bloat of uh, a lot of action movies or superhero movies have done the same thing. So it doesn't surprise me that baseball got less popular as there was just more of it because people were readjusting their batting gloves in between at-bats. That has nothing to do with the popularity of baseball. So I love the time changes. I love the timeliness of delivering to the plate. I love the uh, rules about pickoff moves. And I also love the fact that they looked at those extra inning rules where they just started with a runner on second base and said, um, this isn't baseball. Sure, you could argue a pitching clock is not baseball, but what's the effect of the clock? It moves things along faster. It eliminates things that are non-baseball, which are waiting to play baseball. If you make a rule that cuts out the parts where we don't play baseball, it's actually pro baseball. But if you make a move where we put a guy on second, that's a violation of baseball because baseball is you have to get the guy to second base. We just don't start at second. So all of these seem pretty logical to me. Love the new rules. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Agree with that. You know, I, I like to leave a baseball game wanting more baseball instead of, you know, look, looking at my watch in the seventh inning and saying, oh, maybe I'll cut out by the eighth. And uh, every it's, it's, game it's... and every equipment repositioning. And I think it was just it was allow. It was almost forcing these players into a, a neuroticism of re. I, I would see David Wright, Mets batter, who would take a pitch, step out, and readjust his batting gloves. There's no way the batting glove got loose as you did nothing with your hands, David. <laughs> I hate to pick on David Wright. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, yeah, I, I can't pick on David Wright. I, I never. I, he's uh was was a, a child too much of a childhood hero of mine uh, for me to ever see any fault in in his play, regardless if they, if, if they never won. Yeah. Uh, if that, you know, that was, it was a good team. Uh, the, uh, the, the Delgado um, right team, you know, it, it, with, with all these books, obviously sport, the thing about sports is, is it really is a modern, more, mo you know, long, long terms considering, but it, it's a more modern phenomenon. People were not playing sports in the way uh, 150 years ago in the way that they, they, they do today. So, you know, what, what, do, what do you feel that in this project you, you learned about just the, uh, the way that sports has become such a significant part of life? Is this, could you imagine a world where this didn't happen or do you view this as, as, as another thing, um, that, that was inevitable? 
Yeah, no, nothing's inevitable. And this I write about in my chapter, and it's hard. You could say that and know that intellectually, but it's really hard to feel that. Um, but yeah, nothing's inevitable. And I think what happened was um, the Industrial Revolution made us all wealthier. Eventually, it was, you know, some economists say the only real uh, boost to the economic well-beings of mankind in the history of the world, maybe the move from uh, agrarian from hunter gatherer to agrarian society. But, you know, I was just reading um, a pretty well reasoned and argued book that what the industrial society, the industrial revolution does is it allows uh, a person putting in 10 hours work to produce enough wealth for however many calories it takes to not only sustain him and not only to sustain a wife and children, but to have excess, to have surplus. And with those extra calories, we could do extra work. And once we could do extra work, we have a surplus. And then we have something called leisure time. So all the popularity of sports depends on leisure time. From the 19th to the 20th century, the only people playing sports as an avocation or the vast majority were the wealthy, were people who went to colleges, were people, sometimes they were called the idle rich, although the idle rich like to uh, fence and engage in falconry. But the point is that um, the reason sports have gotten more popular is our lifestyles have gotten a bit less demanding. And if you look at the popularity of sports in China, it says they've become a middle class. When you're working just to scrape by, there's no sense in engaging in a physical activity that will expend calories, quote unquote, for fun. I mean, the Mongolians do wrestle, but they wrestle culturally and, you know, and obviously historically for reasons of trying to uh, vanquish their opponents. So an another fascinating thing about sports is, so, we have this leisure time. Um, there's something about competition that serves as as a um, sublimation of our more violent instincts. We're tribal people. And if we can, again, sublimate that tribalism by organizing around a flag or banner or jersey, it's much better than if we actually physically clash. But if you look at the money in sports, um, that has been almost as much as a revolution as the popularity of sports. Um, I, I, this, I think it was a 30 or 40th anniversary issue of New York Magazine did a study of how much the price of things has changed, adjusted for inflation. Food has gone down. A Broadway ticket has gone down. Housing, in eh, New York City, it's not great, but it is it hasn't exploded. The price of a sports ticket, the price of a Jalen Brown salary compared to whoever was the you know 38th best player uh, in 1970 has exploded so much. It fundamentally changes our appreciation, I think of sports. Yeah, no, the, 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 what's interesting. I, I was just, just read this book recently, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, which is about Fernando Valenzuela and talk, the book talks a lot about the 1981 baseball player strike and how the owners were terrified about, you know, the, this potential flywheel of salary raises that would then complete, you know, cause the owners to lose money and would destroy the sport. But of course, what ended up happening is the players start making more money, then they become more marketable, then more people go to the games, and it ends up <laughs> leading to this place now where, you know, mediocre pitchers may, are making $40 million a year. Yeah, but um, mediocre owners are, at least, I don't know, they're not showing profits of $800 million, but that's what their uh, franchises are appreciating. Yeah, no, they, 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 you know, they, they, it seems like they will never stop appreciating whether or not they, uh, you know, they are actually profitable uh, or not. But, you know, who wouldn't want to own a piece of the Dodgers or own a piece of the, you know, the Giants? 
That's right. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, you know, an, another essay in here that I think raises a really interesting question is what if R Roger Bannister trained today? And obviously, you know, when we look at things, especially, you know, in track and field, uh, you know, we see times just going down and down and down. And it's almost remarkable when we look back at old footage or even just at the, you know, the old statistics of athletes, how uh, bad they were uh, seemingly compared to athletes of today. So, you know, what is your sense uh, about just the progress in athletics that is that has been made? Do you think that you know we've we've made some genetic leaps, or uh, you know, is it really just that our training and our diet and everything is so much better today? And the surgeries. I mean, who are the top five basketball players? Well, you'd have to put Kevin Durant up there. Not even. 30, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that guy is not coming back from his ACL injury. There is a whole raft of NFL running backs who make successful, and that's that's a lifespan or a career span that's very short, but you can come back thanks to surgery. Joe Namath's surgery that ended his playing career, one of the most exciting careers, and cut it short and hobbled him, it would be nothing. It would be outpatient surgery today. So surgery, even if you were drinking scotch and smoking cigars like Babe Ruth, just the surgery alone would be revolutionary. The training is so much better. The equipment is so much better. And that's why when you compare across eras, the track athletes they suffer because in track, it's not about who you beat. It's all about the time. And it's all about the four minute mile. And now a f it's great that he was the first. I mean, that's why he's famous that he was the first to do it. But perhaps people think, well, breaking the four minute mile, high school kids break the four minute mile. Is it really that much of an achievement? Yes, it is that much of an achievement because what, as, as that chapter reveals, what he was running on and training with and what the training methods were, were, uh, you know, it was almost unfathomable. And this is a sport of running. This isn't a sport with so much uh, technical expertise, like throwing a baseball or recovering from, you know, getting pounded by 300 pound offensive or defensive linemen in the NFL. This is, uh, it's, it's hard to get our head around it. And so the only way I tell my kids when we're having this conversation is the greatest of all times, you have to compare based on how they were against others of their era, how much they separated themselves. And so I made the case that Babe Ruth, just given that he hit more home runs than um, every other team in the American League one year, is the greatest baseball player of all time, even if Bonds hit more home runs, putting aside the PED part of it. And what Gretzky did in hockey, now I know hockey's not globally the most important sport, so you might want to cast around for Pele or a soccer player to fit that bill. But his dominance against everyone else playing hockey, and actually those records still stand up, they're mind-boggling. They're, you know, very hard to fathom. This book came out about uh, about five years ago now. So I'm sure that, you know, you've had a lot of time to think about other what-ifs that could have been included. So is there anything, any other what-ifs that you would love to to know the answer to or other things that that you thought of, but, uh, you know, there just wasn't time? Like, you know, what if there was a, a, a upon further review part two coming out? I have thought of that, but mostly I'd want to go back to, uh, I'd want to be author-based. And I mostly think of different authors I'd love to have to write a chapter as opposed, you could, it's easier to come up with the topics than it is to come up with the perfect people to tackle the topics. But, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot about Michael Jordan and what he did post-career and 
something here's a good you know just spitballing this now we all witnessed the popularity of the last dance and the central question there is or the central conceit was michael jordan was one of the biggest bastards ever to play basketball just the hardest person the biggest hard ass and he demanded it of others right and look what he achieved i mean he achieved greatness he achieved all those championships he probably still is the best player of all time what if michael jordan just relaxed a little bit what if michael jordan weren't so outwardly cruel is that possible what if michael jordan went to a therapist once a week like the temptation is to say oh you lose some of the greatness i guess you do that's an uncomfortable answer but also who would write that chapter it'd be interesting to have maybe an nba player or someone who played at a high level of basketball who also acknowledges and talks about mental health how about this we're deciding this right now steve kerr writes the chapter on what if michael jordan relaxed a lot more were kinder to his teammates learn to not accept loss but deal with things in a non totally combative way i don't know that'd be fascinating to me. i would i would read that in a heartbeat i yeah i think i think steve kerr could spin up uh some very interesting uh basketball essays that man is is filled with uh tons of tons of wisdom he'd also be the perfect person uh, to write something like that. It'd also be interesting to re- read uh, Dennis Rodman write that exact same chapter and see the different answers that he might come up with. Um, well, someone would have to write it in the voice of Dennis Rodman, right? I don't think we yeah, could get Commission Rodman, Rodman to sit do down himself. with pen and, pen and quill, quill and parchment for that long. But yeah, that's interesting. How about Kerr can write about all his uh, Chicago Bull teammates from their perspective, what the answer is. So that, that would we be, came into that... practice one day and... Michael was there and, 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 uh, coach Jackson had him under his arm and Michael announced guys, I am now a Buddhist. <laughs> Take it from there. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that is it. Yeah. No more gambling. I, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, just w- with this, with this project having been written in, in, you know, your years spent in, in sports journalism, you know, for those who are interested in sports journalism, because I think that sports journalism is one of those things where even if you're not into the sport, there's such incredible sports writers out there that write about sports in a way that almost reaches like this philosophical uh, level. So, you know, who would you recommend that people go out and read uh, or what sports books would you recommend for people that that haven't read anything of the subject? I don't know if it's still readily available, but Sports Illustrated had a eminently searchable archive for a long time. And I'm sure if you pay a little, you could read it. And some of the writing that Frank DeFore did he, uh, in the in the 1960s and 70s was amazing. He wrote a story on Jimmy Connors, um, Raised by Women to Conquer Men. So good. And he would write about skiing and he would write about uh, sports that maybe we don't even think of as sports, <laughs> pastimes, really. He was, he was an amazing writer, amazing with words. Uh, my favorite sports columnist of all time um, was not writing when I was alive, although, you know, we overlap by about 10 years because Red Smith lived into his late 70s is the only reason. Red Smith was one of the great American sports writers of all time. And a few years into my NPR career, I got a book by Dan Okrent, who is um, a great writer in his own right and an historian the sort of person that I should tap to write a second uh, upon further review part two. He did the collected writings of Red Smith and he um, put them all together. 
So what I would do is I would read these great turns of phrase in Red Smith essays, and I'd work them into NPR stories just for fun, just for my own amusement, um, just as sort of a connection to the past. I didn't even tell anyone. I've told like five people about that, but I love the writing of Red Smith. Yeah, no, there's the the, the turns of phrase that you get from sports writing are are that that's that's particular that's what I love about it the most is the way in which you get you get these metaphors uh that are so apt at describing certain situations and you know so, some great announcers too you know are are you know speak with an almost like literary flair um yeah yeah um a great book that I don't even know the um would be mostly agreed with I think that the the interpretations of this book would be out of favor now but the writing and I think the arguments of Mark Cram's Ghost of Manila about uh, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier fight. It's just fantastic. It's short. It's manageable. I'd recommend that everyone with even a glancing interest in great sports writing avail themselves of that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think my, you know, the last question I have just about this, this volume is obviously, you know, that it's not organized in any particular uh, you know, like, okay, baseball stories first, then football stories, then boxing stories. Um, you know, how how did you decide that the lead essay was going to be about Muhammad Ali? Do you think that all things said and told that Muhammad Ali is the most uh, historically important athlete of the 20th century? Probably. He's probably the most historically important because at the time he was seen as the most historically important. And it's just fascinating how our conception of him has changed and where he was uh, in most people's conception when he boxed versus now this secular saint that he's become. And so you want to lead. I do think you want to lead with just your strongest knockout material, if you will, a Montville as the writer. And talk. I was just enraptured by that essay. And then I wanted to show you, OK, this book has um, contains multitudes. I had Jason Gay writing about what if football had been deemed too boring in 1899, kind of a funny essay. And then we come with another serious one, Shira Springer on the Hitler's Olympics. So by chapter four, we've spent time in the 1960s, the 1890s and the 1930s. And so I have one of the timeliest chapters at the time time of the publication of the book, Ethan Strauss writing about what if the 2017 Golden State Warriors traveled through time to play the greatest teams in NBA history. And a great thing about that is, oh, there's a time machine involved. It's going to be one of those books where not everything is just written by historians. So there was some attention paid to the ordering of the chapters, like the ordering of tracks on an old album. Right. No. Yeah. Not to suggest that it was that it was entirely random. Yeah. Uh, but that, it, you know, you, yeah, that, that you didn't organize it in, the, in it. I think it would have been boring if it was sport by sport by sport, because you're really th this way. It really gets people to to read about subjects that they might not necessarily, uh, you know, be the ones that they that, you know, they, they might decide, oh, well, I only like football. So I'm just going to read about football. Uh, where it's so much more interesting to, you know, read about tug of war or yes. <laughs> or to or to read about, you know, PR, uh, the role of PR. But I have people. to tell you, I had to I, I consciously surrounded the John Boyce essay with ballast with real historians writing about weighty matters. And so that's the Bobby Fisher chapter, which is what if Bobby Fisher had received proper psychiatric help? That was your lead into John Boyce. Then John Boyce talks about the basketball rims being smaller than the basketballs. And then we have Michael McCambridge, a scholar of the NFL, talking about the AFL-NFL merger. So that was also by design.
Yeah, no, this is a, this really is one of those projects where where you 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 bring together you know you know it's it, it, you know much like like your your other work you you know you really are bringing together so many different uh, different types of uh, writers and thinkers and people to you know to talk about sports, which you know uh, just really gives gives unending material uh, to be written about. You know, before before we close out, uh, Mike, I was wondering if you, if you could just share with listeners a little bit about you know what you're working on today, and if people you know are interested in in following up with with the work that you're doing, uh, you know, where should they go? What I'm talking, what I'm doing today is what I do every day. The gist is a daily podcast. Uh, at the time of the recording, I'm interviewing Martha Hodes, who wrote a book about her being hijacked in 1970 when she was 12 years old. I'm interviewing. Andrew Yang for his new very dark novel about politics that'll air in a couple of weeks. I am, I don't know when this will air, but I am taking my one week of vacation a year, but I still do shows. And it's, I was wrong week. I go back to my last nine years of shows and I find nine top five topics in which I was wrong and talk about how I made the mistakes, what we could do better. And, you know, re-examine that little self-reflection after nine years, you make five mistakes, I think. So the gist Wherever you get your podcast, G I S T, uh, that's what I'm. That's what I'll always be doing. Yeah, no, I should say that the, the gist is one of those. Uh, you know, if, for for I'm sure many people are probably familiar with the gist. It's one of those uh, staples in podcasting where if, if you are even a, a, a casual podcast listener, you probably have heard the gist before. Uh, and yeah, I think I think going back and and you know reviewing five mistakes that's a that, that's that's a brilliant idea. If only if only every if only every podcaster uh, did that, you know, maybe that's something I'll consider going back someday. I think most of them it would shake the foundations of their belief systems to think they've ever <laughs> made a mistake. Yeah, that's that, that's definitely true. Uh, well, well, Mike, thanks so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was it was great having you. You're welcome. It was my pleasure, and thank you for doing what you do, Caleb. Of course.